Okay, welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Gillette. My guest today today is Neil Stanton of Northwest Shortline. And for those of you who don't know, the website is www.nwsl.com. If you look at their website, you're going to see that that product line's got about five categories encompassing good grief, literally hundreds of parts. Everything from tools to repowering sets for, for instance, like Athern uh, locomotives, Bachman, River Rossi, to name a few. So welcome, Neil. Glad you could be with us. Thanks, Paul. All righty. Uh, let me just ask you, how did you uh, become so uh, closely related to uh, Northwest Short Lines? Oh, well, first, uh, a clarification. Uh, I actually work with Northwest Short Line. I'm not on their payroll. I don't actually work for them. I prefer to say I work with them. And what's evolved there is essentially supplying engineering services, uh, mainly the design type to uh, Northwest Short Line. Now, uh, the, uh, the sort of the more interesting story, I suppose, is how did I ever get to uh, this particular position where I wanted to do engineering for model railways and I finished up working with Northwest Short Line. So how did that come about? Well, if we go back to the beginning, first of all, from my accent, you may uh, be asking, well, where did this guy start out? Well, I started out in Australia. And uh, I grew up near Sydney, and Sydney's a large city now. Uh, it even was small, big when I was there. And they had a very uh, good and extensive uh, metropolitan rail system, uh, powered, uh, at least the people move a part of it, was uh, essentially uh, electric multiple units, which we, uh, we called affectionately the Red Rattlers. But uh, <laughs> yeah. they uh, they more officially were called Sydney Electrics. Uh, uh, it's pretty easy to figure out where the red rattler came from. They were painted Tuscan red and they rattled a lot and they bumped along and uh, that was it. So having uh, grown up in Sydney or near Sydney and being familiar with that system, uh, I... Uh, I was in the sort of model railroad hobby uh, pretty much from high school, but on and off, it a uh, uh, career took precedence, and uh, I abandoned it for a while and then came back to it. Well, about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I decided to um, to build a layout, and uh, this layout was planned as a, a metropolitan-style layout with lots of interurban traffic and uh, lots of people moving around. And not surprisingly, it was based loosely on the idea of the uh, the Sydney system with the Sydney electric multiple units. And uh, I got to know uh, Peter Berg and before Peter Berg, uh, his father. And they, uh, they're the owners. His father's now deceased, but Peter's the current owner of Berg's Hobbies in Sydney. And um, over the years, uh, <clears throat> Berg's Hobbies have introduced a number of excellent models of the uh, the Sydney uh, Electric uh, fleet, so it was obvious that I should, uh, you know, work with them uh, to provide the rolling stock for this uh, layout that I was building, uh, or at least I planned to build. Uh, I did build quite a bit of it, but then I got sidetracked with other things, and uh, it's like a lot of model layouts sitting there unfinished, work in progress, as we like to say. So uh, that's how I met up with Peter Berg. Uh, that's how the concept of the 
layout came about, and that's how I finished up uh, uh, working a lot with these electric multiple units. And um, you'll see some evidence of that on the uh, uh, Northwest Shortline website because, lo and behold, you'll see some pictures uh, introducing Stanton products, uh, which uh, are, guess what, electric multiple units. Hopefully, before long, Dave will replace them with some good uh, um, mainline diesels, uh, U.S. style, uh, hopefully powered by uh, Northwest Shortline products. Okay. So you were using, you know, you had your Red Rattlers that you were modeling, and, you know, how did that make you or get you involved with uh, NSW or Northwest Shortlines? Okay, well, the... Using the Sydney Electric sort of got me into the, uh, led to the Stanton drive, really. The idea was to replace the uh, body-mounted uh, motor, which is a big thing sitting in the passenger compartment of a, you know, interurban rail car, uh, not looking very pretty, uh, and replace that with an underfloor truck, a powered truck that would be underfloor. And uh, I set out on that direction thinking, well, I'll just buy the appropriate product. I bought two different products, uh, neither of which in the end was successful for reasons that I can explain. In my frustration, uh, I slowly came to the idea of, well, I'll see if I can't design something better. But along the way, I um, worked uh, with the, the Northwest Shortline product, which was then the uh, PDT. Mm -hmm. And being somewhat dissatisfied with the consistency of the performance. In other words, sometimes I would get an absolutely brilliant one that was beautiful, and then I'd get a lemon, and no matter what I did, I couldn't make it work. So I would take it back to uh, uh, Raul Martin, who was the owner of, uh, who I got to meet as the owner of uh, Northwest Shortline. He introduced himself to me as Fred, by the way, and I've, I've called him Fred ever since. So. Uh, Fred tried valiantly and uh, um, patiently to uh, fine-tune the, the BDTs I wasn't happy with. But in the end, I decided the design was basically flawed. And no matter how much he fiddled, there was never going to be real consistency. And so I tried. So I actually did come up with a design, which was sort of on paper at that point. And I tried to explain to Fred how this would uh, um, potentially get around some of the problems we were seeing. But... I was getting I was getting polite uh, conversation uh, and he was listening patiently but no real response. And finally, Fred confided in me. He said, "Look, uh, Northwest Shortline's up for sale, and it might be a good idea if I introduce you to the fellow who's going to buy the business, or at least I hope he's going to buy the business. Uh, mm -hmm. a guy called Dave Rigmeyer." And I said, "Well, that won't hurt." And so uh, he gave me a, a contact number for Dave and. Uh, I eventually made a phone call, got into a conversation with uh, with Dave, and uh, we discovered that we actually had um, mutual problems with the PDT, and I continue with that part of the story in a minute, uh, but uh, perhaps you've got a question at this point. Well, what was the, you know, you've mentioned that some of the PDTs were good, some weren't so good. Did you ever nail down what the problem was on them? Yes, uh, I did. Uh, I didn't nail down what the design flaw was in them. Uh, both of the products that I'd uh, experimented with um, were of similar design, and they required 
three plastic uh, parts uh, to uh, as the basic structure of the truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the top part was essentially a top plate which carried the kingpin, and was the frame for two end caps. And I called them end caps because they were essentially friction fit caps that slid onto the end of the motor, and then uh, and those those end caps also carried the uh, the the, uh, the holes um, for the uh, the axles and the uh, and of course the gear on the. Uh, wheel axles the reason they were designed that way is you could slip the uh the end frames uh, back and forth a little bit on the motor and then drill some holes and screw them to the top frame and and that way uh, customize the wheelbase the problem with it is that when pressure was put on the kingpin uh, the downward pressure on the kingpin would create a cantilever action as the wheels pushed up and the frame would flex and of course, the moment that happened, the worm gear would jam against the worm, and uh, bad performance. Uh, even in some cases, totally jamming everything. Okay. Uh, and uh, in some cases, not not even repairable. Just have to take the whole thing apart. Uh, it was uh, just not a good design. Okay, so you meet Dave Rigmeyer, who's going to buy Northwest Short Line. Uh, and the the first thing you're going to talk to him about is, you know, you've got a really terrible product, or words that affect that, you know, there's some problem with the PDT. How'd that go? Well, sometimes you have to take a risk, and sometimes you get lucky. Right. I um I told uh, Dave, uh, one of the children he just uh, adopted by buying Northwest Shortline was was ugly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he responded quite positively. He said, yeah, I know. And he said, it's worse than you think. Why? Well, Sagami isn't building those motors. In fact, Sagami doesn't exist anymore. And these damn uh, PDTs are customized to that particular motor. And from my prior discussion with the end caps being a friction fit on the motor, uh, you can see why. Uh, the uh, the PDT required a specific motor mm-hmm. uh, in order to be able to assemble it. So Dave said, i got a real problem. I've got PDTs. I can't build them anymore. They're in the catalog. I can't build them because I don't have the motors and I can't buy the motors. I said, well, Dave, in addition, uh, there are other problems. He said, yeah, well, I, I um, they're, they're, they're terrible to try and assemble. They're very labor-intensive trying to, you know, set them up and get them to run smoothly. I said, yeah, I can, I, I can see why that's the case too. Well, Dave, i got a design that I think might solve those problems. So do you want to talk about it? And okay, said, so you had already been noodling an alternative or a better design to this. Yeah, I had taken the design and sort of sketched it out for Fred and Martin at uh, Northwest Shortline. And I basically just ran the same design by Dave. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, his response was, well, I'm sure I'm interested because, you know, I, I can't build these PDTs anymore and it's a product I'd love to have. So let's look at it. And um, so I sent him the design and uh, he came back and said, well, you know, typical negotiation, I think, at this point. Uh, he said, well, you know, I can't. I can't just adopt this thing because, you know, it's I can't commit resources to this just based on a drawing and an idea. 
what are we going to do about it? My response was, well, I'm so frustrated. I was getting ready to sink money into engineering a prototype anyway. But I got no way to build it in, in any kind of quantity because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have a machine shop. I don't do wheels and gears and axles and bearings and all that stuff. You do. He said, well, okay, but I'm not paying for the development. I said, no, okay, but I'm not paying for production. He said, well, well, that's okay, but if you can get this thing uh, to running prototypes and I can sort of test this thing to destruction by running it till it drops dead, and if it survives long enough, I'll be convinced that it's viable, and then uh, I'll commit uh, through Northwest Shortline to actually take on the manufacturing. But, Neil, you're going to have to absorb the expense of uh, getting it to the point where it's a proven product or ready ready for production. Uh, and so we basically agreed on that. And um, somewhere along the way there, Dave said, oh, and by the way, uh, since you're putting some effort into this, we'll, we need a name. We'll call it the Stanton Drive. Okay. So, so that's how it happened. Well, let me, let's take a step back. So you're in Australia. You're in Sydney. You, you know, you're dabbling in model railroading and so forth. How did you get to the United States? You mentioned you've lived here a long time. What was the catalyst that brought you here and brought you to Seattle? Well, I, I was a, trained as an electrical engineer. In fact, I had postdoctoral okay. training as a as an electrical engineer, and um, I thought, well, I need to go overseas to really get um, more engineering experience, and um, I can't go directly into industry necessarily in the U.S., but I might be able to get a job in a university, and that's what happened. So okay. um, about 46 years ago, I joined the faculty of Purdue University, and uh, um, much to my wife's chagrin, she sometimes reminds me, I never got back to Australia. Okay, so the, you're a boilermaker then, a Purdue yeah, boilermaker. Yeah, I, I spent uh, about six years on the faculty at Purdue University, yeah. Okay, now, and this is all before you met uh, Fred, the original owner of Northwest Short Line, or uh, simultaneous, yeah. or? Many years before that. Uh, it was uh, like 1964, 65 that I went to Purdue, and um, uh, I'm... Many years later, moved to Seattle. I've been in Seattle um, uh, since 1979. I met Fred uh, probably in about 2007. Okay, so you've met Dave Rigmeyer, and you guys have struck this accommodation to where you're going to design a new powered truck. And I take it from there. How'd you do the prototype for it? I essentially did... Uh, uh, 3D CAD design of the frame, and um, the technology is such now that once you've got a 3D CAD in the right kind of software, you can just upload it to uh, to the appropriate manufacturer, and they'll make you what's called a milled prototype. Essentially, they use totally automated milling mm -hmm. to produce a prototype. In fact, as many prototypes as you want, and because it's milled from the same design as the eventually injection molded tooling will be built from you you essentially have got a very good replica of what the ultimate injection molded product will be like and the of course at this point there's no tooling being paid for you're just paying for time and and whatever to actually do the milled prototypes and that's how we did it um, um 
got milled prototypes of the frame. Um, Dave, of course, provided wheels and gears and motors, and uh, we put it together. Okay. Now, tell me about the your design, you know, and how you overcame the the uh, weak points of the other one, that three-piece design. What did you do differently? Well, instead of a three-piece design, the frame for the Stanton Drive is a one-piece injection molded product. Okay. The the uh, kingpin, the top plate, and the frame that carries the axles is all one piece of plastic. On top of that, uh, the motor, of course, slips into that frame. Um, the wheels and bearings slip into it, and then everything's held in place by a printed circuit board on the bottom. That printed circuit board on the bottom has an electrical function, but more importantly, it has an important mechanical function. It essentially creates a box so that as the wheels try to splay out under the pressure on the kingpin, the printed circuit board, of course, won't let that happen. So we finish up with a very rigid design. There's virtually no flex in it at all. You can put all kinds of weight on the kingpin and nothing bad happens. Uh, that that was the key to the design, and um, we got a copyright on that design, by the way, which is now owned by Northwest Shortline. Okay. Now, a part of what you've done there, and I you know, have read this off the website where it talks about the uh, Stanton truck, uh, you've got a individually adjustable bearings. Correct. Okay, so if I'm able to tune those bearings, what am I accomplishing? I mean, most, you know, I don't find that on Nathan Genesis or a, a P2K2000. Why did you go to that? that level of detail and expense. It's all to do with the uh, clearance on the gearing. Okay. Um, in the jargon of uh, gearing, uh, the gears that we use are a mod 0.3. Um, typically, the local manufacturers use mod 0.4, which are not nearly as finicky in terms of the uh, um, gear clearances. Um, we're working with gear clearances of the order of uh, a tenth of a millimeter. And it doesn't take much um, to just, you know, not not get a nice smooth running connection between the worm and the worm gear. Okay. Uh, in addition, uh, when th this is a rigid frame, okay, so we've got no springing on the axles. So we've got to worry about the four-legged chair behaving um, badly so that, you know, we only have three wheels uh, making contact with the track and it's teeter-tottering along. Right. And so we can use the individual adjustments, which are just set screws, uh, to actually get both axles really nicely aligned so we get good four-point seating of the truck on the track and um, we get really nice uh, smooth running of the uh, the worm and worm gear. Okay. Now, for the listeners, if you go to their website and you look at this, you're going to see tables uh, dimensions, wheelbases with different diameter wheels. How many versions of this truck do you conceivably uh, produce when you consider all those variables? Got any idea? It's, re <laughs> it's really uh, almost a, a custom product in some respects because there's hundreds of variations can actually be assembled. Yeah. To essentially decide 
what truck is needed for a particular locomotive requires decisions of three different things. Wheelbase. Okay. Wheel diameter. And tread width on the wheel. And uh, the wheelbase could be anything from uh, uh, six and a half feet up to ten feet. There are three different plastic frames uh, or truck frames that allow that that range of... Uh, wheelbases and um, each each frame essentially allows us to have three different wheelbases so we only need three frames um, because of the tooling expense of course we want to minimize the number of um, frames we have to produce so we only need three to cover that entire range uh, and two different size motors but the motor decisions made by Northwest Shortline all, all the customer has to do is say I want this wheelbase I want 42-inch wheels, and I want a 110 tread, point, point 0.110 tread. Okay. Now, who, because if I understand it, the customer then provides his own side frames, be they EMD, B-trucks for an Alco or an early GE, is that correct? That's correct. And um, normally, uh, people are retrofitting onto some existing uh, product, and so it's generally... Uh, fairly convenient to, to essentially take the side frames um, from the existing model and um, uh, connect them to the uh, the, the Stanton truck. Uh, by the way, the Stanton truck is uh, ABS plastic, so almost any uh, good plastic adhesive or solvent will, uh, will work nicely. We do recommend uh, being a little careful uh, on how that's done because um, it's very important to align the... Uh, the uh, axle journals on the truck uh, with the real axle. Otherwise, it looks kind of wacky. Now, right now, you do four-motor or four-wheel trucks. Do you have plans to do six-wheel trucks downstream? Yeah, we've done designs um, for a a three-axle truck. Mm -hmm. And um, so far, there's been very little demand uh, for a three-axle truck. And I think this has to do with the the application of the of the underfloor truck and the nature of the the model locomotive business. Okay. Now, when I look at amperages and stuff like that, and I take your motor and how does it compare to something I might find in an Aether and Art, you know, ready to run or a a genesis as far as, you know, its current draw and so forth like that, those kind of parameters. Is it comparable? Is it lower draw? Is Tell me about it. It's a much lower draw as far as motor current is concerned. It's a, it's a very small motor, and it's, uh, it's specifically engineered for the, uh, for the, uh, under, the uh, Stanton truck. Okay. It... Um, Typical no-load uh, uh, current will be about 50 milliamps and uh, stall current's about 260 milliamps. Um, so it's um, uh, stall current on a typical uh, mass-produced uh, diesel-electric loco with a body-mounted motor. Typically, that's going to run about 500 milliamps stall current. Okay. So it's stall current's roughly half what you'd expect on a on a typical commercial product okay and with the gearing and stuff that you 
have in there? Do you have comparable pulling power? I mean, do I have to make, you know, accommodations for it, like by MUing or something like that? Or how does it perform from that standpoint? Its performance is pretty much limited by the um, traction. Uh, if you can get enough weight onto it, um, it's got a lot of torque. It'll it'll pull quite well. Um, okay. It it almost always spins the wheels before it ever stalls. So weight, getting enough weight on it is really uh, the the key to traction. The um, it, it probably doesn't have the pulling power of a Hulk and big, uh, um, you know, diesel electric full of lead. Mm-hmm. Or whatever the uh, environmentally correct uh, weight is these days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, and is it common to just with the applications just to use one powered truck, or do people use both trucks powered? We generally recommend one truck per loco and one dummy per loco. There are some reasons for that. And what's that? Well. Not the least of it is the cost. Uh, underfloor trucks are, you know, are not cheap. Uh, right. Now, and you don't want to buy junk. So you want to buy a good one. It's going to cost, you know, a significant amount of money. I, Dave, Dave Rigmar can explain all that. Um, and in many cases, there's no reason to put two in a loco. Now, if you do want to put two in a loco, it's best to connect them in parallel Okay. Which, uh, with two motors in a loco, you could say, well, you could go with a series connection, uh, which would give slower top speeds because the voltage is shared across the two motors. Or you could go in parallel, which means you essentially double the current requirement and uh, both motors are seeing the 12-volt supply, and so they'll both run at their rated speed. However, uh, series motor connections have some tricky little issues that, We'll leave uh, for an electrical engineering conversation. Okay. Uh, wire them in parallel if you want to. Be very, very careful that both trucks run equally smoothly. Both have essentially the same starting voltage. Otherwise, the starting behavior will get a bit balky. And this is true of um, consists as well, by the way. Anytime there are multiple motors, you know, sharing the load, if they don't have the same characteristics and starting voltage, the results at low speed won't be too good. Okay. Yeah, that's no different than any other. And going back to, you mentioned the the price of two. You know, the price is shown on the website for all that it does, and it's a DCC-ready truck, right? It has a plug-in harness. It's wired so that it's very easy to connect the decoder. This, there's actually no harness, but okay. it comes from the factory with four wires, two for the motor and two for pickup. Um, they're connected together at the factory, so if you want to run DC, um, they're ready to run. All you have to do is separate the wires. They're color-coded uh, in conformance with DCC standards, so it's a really easy conversion. Okay, but I guess my point was I thought, you know, for what you're getting – I didn't think it was overly priced. I thought it was a, you know, a good value price. Uh, all right, so you put your the uh, the side frames of choice with it, and 
thing that intrigues me about this, Neil, is that, for instance, if I were to take a uh, an F7 frame and remove the, you know, gear towers out of it, the flywheels and all that, all of a sudden I've got a big cavity to put a decent-sized speaker enclosure in if I'm running sound. And the other thing I want to talk to you about is the battery power, the LiPo option. That just strikes me as incredibly logical. And the next step, get away from dirty track. And you guys sell the LiPo battery, right? We sell the LiPo power supply, and um, we're working very hard to uh, establish a good source of supply for appropriate batteries. Okay. See, I think that's a... The the big-scale dyes are already doing that. Uh, my hobby shop has already done some conversions for some O-scalers and G-scalers that have gone to battery power for outdoor layouts. And even on an indoor layout, golly, you introduce... You know, battery power versus power through the track. Boy, your wiring just got very simple. Uh, wow. I mean, I think that that, you know, the Stanton truck and the benefits it affords. I mean, this could be the wave of the future. Now, the S-Cab, which is, that's also of your design. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Tell us about the S-Cab. Well, let's go back to battery power momentarily. Okay, sure. Remember the Sydney Electrics with the big motor sitting in the passenger compartment where it would be more appropriate to see passengers. One of my motives for going to the underfloor truck was to get that big motor out of the passenger compartment. But I had an ulterior motive as well, which was to get space in there for batteries. And... um, I realized that if I was going to use batteries, I'd I'd need some way to control the loco. So that's where the concept came from of, well, let's get the motor out of there, give ourselves some space, get a battery in there, and let's find a way to control the locomotive, given that it's got battery power, and I may not have any connection to the loco through the track, so how am I going to control it? Which, of course, led to the inevitable decision, well, it looks like we need radio control. So this was not some grand engineering design. This was an idea of what I thought would be a useful thing to do, given that I was modeling an urban layout with lots of complicated switching because mm-hmm. uh, the the key or the hub of the the layout was essentially a large passenger terminus, and you know that the track work, uh, as you fan out to enter a large, even a modest-sized passenger terminal, especially a terminus, gets pretty elaborate. And I was facing the dawning prospect of uh, wiring a layout with a lot of complicated uh, track work, and I'd done a lot of it, and I did not have DCC-friendly switches and all that good stuff. And so I had a huge motivation to um, get rid of having to wire the track or at least minimize the wiring of the track. And uh, uh, and so, you know, I was very enthusiastic about seeing what I could do with battery power, and the radio control became a consequence of the desire to go to battery power, and the battery power was a consequence of not having to wire the track. 
So that was kind of the thought process that led to where we're at. So the S-CAB evolved as a response to the need to control locomotives by radio. And I went through a number of... The radio stuff probably took over probably about eight years of evolution. Uh, I... um, I began experimenting with lithium polymer batteries pretty much as soon as the technology became viable. Uh, Well, actually, lithium ion in those days. uh, And uh, I didn't much like lithium ion because of their risks, but the lithium polymer are very, very safe and uh, um, very robust. So I'm very happy with lithium lithium polymer. That's kind of an aside, but it's an important point to, to keep in mind. So I went through various iterations of radio control with various products from the people who do radio controls. And I finally converged on a manufacturer of a radio module. Their name is Lynx Technologies. I'll put in a plug for them. Okay. Um, Their their products, by the way, are used by other um, manufacturers in the model railway space. Uh, So... um, what is that? L Y N X or L I N K S or how? It's L it's L I N X Technologies and they they're based in Oregon. So after trying a number of different products I I used their module and liked it. And I was trying to send um I was trying to develop a way of sending commands and then it dawned on me one day that I don't really need to do that. If I just take the DCC signal that's going to the track and feed it to the transmitter and let the transmitter transmit that exact same signal to the radio, then if I can get the signal out of the radio into a regular DCC decoder, it should work. Mm -hmm. In short, it did. So that's how we got to the point of saying, well... We've got a product that will handle the radio. We can send the DCC signal to the locomotive. We need a decoder in the locomotive, but it can be a regular commercial product so long as we can figure out how to modify it to receive the radio signal. I'll come back to that a bit later. Okay. So now we go to the other end of the communication path and say, well, what's the operator going to do? Well, anyone who's worked with DCC knows that you can get wireless cabs and wireless cabs talk with some sort of proprietary protocol to DCC command stations or master stations and the master stations dutifully take care of everything and output the DCC signal to the track and of course from the track it gets the locomotive. Well, what's different about S-CAB is that we're sending the DCC signal directly from the transmitter in the S-CAB to the receiver in the locomotive. There's no command station or master station in the middle. There's no supplemental protocol to handle how you talk to master stations. There's just one protocol. It's the standard DCC protocol uh, going directly from the handheld uh, throttle, which is the S-CAB, by radio to the receiver in the locomotive, and that's it. 
Very clean, very clean. So your controller, uh, besides sending out the the radio signal with the you know the information, does it function much the same? It controls speed. It has does it have Z, CV buttons on it so you can control light, sound, all those different uh, options. Yes, any any command that can be sent by DCC can be sent by radio. The radio is completely transparent. The question is, will the decoder, when it gets the signal, understand the, the message? Because decoders, you know, manufacturers aren't obliged to support all of the commands that can be transmitted. Mm-hmm. And for those that know DCC, there's multiple ways of sending the DCC message. There's, um, especially when we get to um, configuration variables, CVs. And um, there's things like page mode and the direct mode and on and on and on. It gets very, uh, very uh, techo kind of stuff, which most most modelers would prefer to avoid, and so would I. So oh, yeah, so <laughs> would I too. Yeah. <laughs> so what we do is um, support a limited number of CVs. Uh, or CV editing from SCAB. And this will work with some decoders. It won't work with others. Our default decoder for people who want a non-sound option would be the uh, North Coast Engineering D13SR. And again, no need to memorize it. Um, Just go to the Northwest Shortline website and look it up. That's that's a a very... um, affordable and um, quite an adequate uh, decoder. No sound, of course. Uh, It turns out that we can program a certain number of CVs, the very popular ones like local address, momentum, starting voltage, um, stuff like that. Oh, the famous CV29, uh, which is (laughs) obscure but important. Uh, those those we can program from uh, from SCAB. We just have to put it into what's called the CV mode, and away we go. Uh, we've not had success uh, programming um, sound decoders. In fact, we only support one sound decoder, which is the Soundtrack Tsunami. Uh, okay. And, and in fact, the uh, TSU-1000. We haven't even supported the TSU-750 yet. I don't see why we won't in the future, but right now we're limited to one particular model. But it's a very popular model, and there's a lot of demand for it. Uh, We're not able to program CVs on the uh, Tsunami uh, sound decoder. And with sound decoders, and in fact with all decoders, the manufacturers are allowed to uh, introduce their own um, almost proprietary CVs. There's a, a range of CVs set aside in the standard which are manufacturer-specific, and each manufacturer can decide what to do with those. And so there's no uniformity um, from one manufacturer to another, so it's an incredibly difficult job to support multiple decoders when you want to do um, editing of, uh, or programming, as it's called in the industry of the, of the CVs. The bread and butter ones, uh, which I just mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're defined in the standard, and so... Um, that's much easier to deal with them. And they're the ones most models want to fiddle with anyway. Um, 
because you know we've always got to sort of set the uh, decoder address anyway. They come from the factory with uh, address number three, and each each decoder's got to have a unique address. So that's that's one we have to change. Okay. So um, yes, it's a long answer to a short question. Yes, we can program a subset of the CVs on um, certain decoders, but not all decoders. Okay, so in your development, did you have to develop a sort of handshake protocol program to have your choice of radio receiver that you're mating to an NCE uh, decoder? Did you have to facilitate you know, that on a custom basis so that it could uh, receive the information that you're transmitting? There's no customization on the radio. The, okay. the radio manufacturer makes a transmitter and a receiver. They're totally compatible. Whatever we want to send, we feed into the transmitter, and it comes out the other end of the receiver. Where we have to do, um, quote, customization, or I call it modification, is on the on the interface between the radio and the decoder. Right, and that's, that was really, I probably misstated it, but that was really what I was after. Okay. Right. Now, what's coming out of the receiver in, in our case is a signal that looks exactly like the signal that the local would see on the track if it were running DCC on the track. The trick is that when it comes in through the track, the signal somehow has to get through the rectifier diodes on the decoder somehow through the rest of the clutter into the microprocessor because it's the microprocessor that does the decoding of the message. So we know that any DCC signal is going to have to get to the microprocessor one way or another. And um, if it's not coming through the track, it's got to go by a d more direct means. So what what I do in my sort of reverse engineering activities is figure out how to make the connection uh, from the radio so the signal is going more or less directly to the microprocessor on the decoder. Okay. Was that a, was that a big task? I mean, or did that turn out to be fairly... Uh... I hate to use the word simple, but obviously it wasn't insurmountable because you've done it, right? It's not easy. Okay. But I've, I've developed some techniques now that certainly facilitate it. Okay. And um, most, uh, I should say, by the way, any mod like this totally voids the uh, warranty on a decoder. And no manufacturer will go public and say, they approve of it or support it. So it's quite pointless to <clears throat> expect uh, a decoder manufacturer to endorse this kind of thing, even though they tacitly are willing to admit, you know, privately, well, it's a pretty neat idea. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then, how is, uh, you know, has it been well-received since you redesigned the uh, the truck? And, uh, I mean, I think it's an incredible idea, that and the S-Drive. 
and all this. I just think it's really cutting edge stuff. The uh, the powered truck, the uh, the S drive, as we call it, has been very successful. It's become hugely popular with um, <clears throat> modelers, uh, particularly ON30 and ON3 guys, love it. Uh, I'm told by uh, Dave Rigmeyer that the uh, people um, in the traction modeling area, the streetcars and trolleys, um, are, are totally, totally in love with it. He's got a contest uh, starting up to uh, to see how much creativity people can apply to putting it in critters. Critters <laughs> being uh, critters being Dave's uh, name for anything that's sufficiently oddball that, yeah, uh, uh, you know, a, a locomotive engineer might want to not want to acknowledge it. But there's plenty of modelers out there who like that space. So that's that's been a big success, uh, and. It's a steady, uh, I think it's a, a, a well-selling product. Uh, well, uh, we're, what's coming next? I mean, what's next on your plate? I mean, these are truly innovative products. So where are you heading from here? Okay. Well, we talked a bit about the, the, the power, powered truck being quite successful. And um, the, uh, the radio control and battery powers... Um, beginning to catch on um momentum is building uh it's it's kind of uh evolving kind of through a referral process and through um people you know talking about things on the web it's uh it's not it's not a conventional ramp up of a product there there's some advantages to that in that uh we can get get what i call pre-engineering um versions of things out there get field experience with them and that's been uh, particularly important on the uh on the power supply, and uh, that's worth a that's worth a few more remarks, I think, to uh, to kind of uh, set the groundwork, perhaps, for where I think things might go. Battery power is here to stay. The large scale guys have been using it for a long, long time because they've had plenty of space and they could put big lead acid batteries in there, G scale whatevers, and mm-hmm. practically sit on them and ride them if they want to. The smaller scale people, of course, have been shut out of that because batteries haven't been small enough uh, to to be practical. But the state of battery technology today uh, essentially changes the landscape there. And there's really two ways to go for someone who's doing HO modeling or even uh, ON30 or ON3, something like that. And that is to either go with what's called the battery pack, and I would say a lithium polymer battery pack, which come in uh, multiples of 3.7 volts because that's the nominal voltage of a lithium polymer cell. So we can buy battery packs of two cells, three cells, four cells, um, and connected in series. They give a nice range of voltages. That's the battery pack. The approach I adopted was essentially to go with a single lithium polymer cell, a one-cell not 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 a battery pack. Now the challenge there is we've got 3.7 volts nominal at the battery, and we need 12 volts to run the locomotive. Typically, well, that's okay. We have what's called a step-up converter. We uh, essentially electronically step the voltage up from the the battery voltage to the 12 volts we want. And the other advantage of having a a, a single uh, cell is that we can essentially build the battery charger right into the power supply so that the battery charger is actually in the loco. And that way we can be charging the battery wherever there's power on the track. And um, 
there's some non-trivial engineering in the battery charger because uh, we've got a lot of uh, potential heat dissipation if we try to charge a 3.7-volt battery off a a 14-volt supply on the track. So there's a significant amount of electronics involved there, but but it's all sort of standard stuff, more or less. So the, the, the battery power supply, as distinct from the battery power pack, is that the battery power supply can essentially charge the battery any time there's power on the track. Uh, it steps up that voltage to 12 volts, uh, provides a constant voltage, uh, current-limited uh, output uh, to uh, to the 12-volt electronics or motor on the loco, decoder, whatever. The battery pack, on the other hand, um, typically requires an external battery charger. And to, to be safe, the battery charger should be provided by the same manufacturer as the manufacturer of the battery pack. Uh, Modelers are going both ways, and both methods are good. And I don't have any uh, any uh, preference one way or the other, battery pack or battery power supply. It's just that with both those options out there and with battery power being such a, a an attractive proposition, I, uh, you know, it gets around dirty track issues, gets around short circuits uh, as you go through non-DC friendly track switches and stuff like that. It solves a whole lot of issues. Sure does. I, I think it's uh, it's inevitable. It's 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 coming. It's going to catch on. Uh, so I, I I think there's a fairly clear vision for where battery power is going. I think that you know my role in that will be limited pretty much to variations on the quote battery power supply a la the Stanton design the um, and there's actually quite a few issues there because um, the of, of capacity uh, essentially how much capacity can you fit in a given space mm-hmm. uh, and um, there are other technical issues so it's an it's an, it's an area that needs engineering input but it's it's they're not going to be too many big surprises going forward there. Well, let me ask, because you made a statement a while ago, and I'm familiar with lithium-ion. Uh, almost all my tools now have 18-volt lithium-ion rechargeables on them. You mentioned the downside of lithium-ion vis-a-vis lithium polymer. What are some of those distinctions or benefits? And it's it's a sidebar conversation, but what's your opinion on the, the benefits of the lithium polymer? Lithium polymer... Uh, batteries contain a, a kind of a gel inside they're sort of semi-liquid and um, they're typically in a metal casing and the most available configurations are cylindrical okay they um i think the manufacturers now have gotten to the point where they're they're pretty safe and they're pretty forgiving even if they're abused a bit but they're not as forgiving as lithium polymer okay lithium polymer the the active part of a lithium polymer cell is kind of um like a almost like a plastic and um it's encased in a metal foil actually an aluminum metal foil they've proven to be almost um they'll tolerate almost any abuse um even though you shouldn't abuse them but then you can short circuit them you can hammer nails through them just about anything and they won't explode whereas if you try to do that with a lithium-ion battery you're asking for a fire 
um, because um, once the fluid in a, um, a lithium-ion battery um, gets to oxygen, you've got a real fire potential, and it's not a fire you can put out easily. Um, the advice is have a bucket of sand ready. Just dump a bucket of sand over it. That's probably the easiest way to put out a lithium fire. Just deprive it of oxygen. Yeah, you can't you can't do it with water. Okay. Um, that'll just make it worse. So you just dump a bucket of sand over it. Uh, I don't want to sound alarmist, and those I I don't have those concerns at all with lithium polymer. Okay. Um, and that's why I I exclusively use lithium polymer. By the way, I don't. And the fact that they come in rectangular, which are called prismatic designs, makes them very nice. Uh, you know, fitting in uh, a typical diesel electric loco. Uh, I suppose a cylindrical battery might be nice in the uh, boiler of a steam loco, but there's usually other stuff in there. So a prismatic design or rectangular design is uh, very convenient. Well, you also mentioned using a step-up. Step-up converter. Yes. How does that work? I mean, I. so you're going to take a 3.7-volt uh, cell, and instead of just running uh, those in series to get your 12 volts, you're going to take a 3.7 and use a step-up converter. Correct. And how does that work? I, I don't know. Well, in the electronics jargon, they're called uh, switching converters. And essentially what we do is we take the uh, DC voltage from the battery and we chop it into uh, what we call a square wave. And once we've chopped it into a square wave, we can play with... Um, inductors and capacitors just like we do in uh, AC um, and we get a, a kind of a transformer effect uh, which uh, will allow us to produce just about any voltage we want at the output. Uh, it's all sort of electronic magic or electrical engineering magic but <laughs> it has uh, okay. it, it has some really good advantages. Uh, uh, one of the things with a battery, especially uh, lithium uh, polymer batteries is that the voltage declines fairly steeply as we drain the uh, charge out of the battery, mm -hmm. which means, and this is even worse, when we've got a number of these cells connected in series, uh, they're going to range over a significant voltage range, you know, over the life of the charge on that battery, which means your loco or whatever's using the battery is seeing actually a variable voltage as it, you know, as you use it. The advantage of the step-up converter is that it essentially provides a regulated voltage output, so the voltage holds steady at 12 volts, even as the battery voltage, or the, the cell voltage in my case, is declining. So we've got a nice constant voltage DC um, supply coming out. The other thing we do is we provide automatic current limiting uh, as part of the electronics, so that if the output uh, is overloaded, the... Uh, the step-up converter automatically just cuts back the voltage to uh, prevent the current from uh, uh, getting excessive. I should also mention this. There should be voltage protection on the battery. There'll be protection on the battery as well so that the battery will also trip its protection on overcurrent as well. So we've got two levels of protection, uh, and, and we've also got the benefit of constant voltage output within the range of the battery uh, capability, that is. Obviously, at overload situations, the, the voltage is going to decline because that's the way to limit the current output and, and protect against overcurrent. Okay. 
when you look at the basic uh, lipo battery pack, what kind of you know running uh, one of your Stanton uh, powered truck uh, just in a and I know it's hard to define what's normal, but what kind of charge life does that usually yield? Have you done any testing on that? Or have you quantified that? Yeah, I've done quite a lot of testing on that. The um, the standard battery that we're supplying right now is um, rated at 850 milliamp hours. Uh, that's 850 milliamps continuous for one hour, milliamp hour. So um, that's the capacity we have to work with from a fully charged battery. We typically can run... Um, you know, a light vehicle, uh, electric multiple unit, or um, um, uh, you know, a modest, uh, a fairly efficient uh, ON30 loco. Um, you know, pulling a, a modest size uh, train um, about maybe two hours, uh, maybe three hours. It just depends on um, whether the loco is being run continuously or it's being paused for stops here and there. Okay. But, yeah, typically, you know, two or three hours. Um, I have one one customer who um, has a huge layout and runs a very heavy um, um, HO loco, uh, which pulls about uh, half an amp on full load, and um, he's running a essentially a a, ver- a twenty minute run actually on a large layout, twenty minutes continuous with a an eleven coach train, and uh, he. Um, We've had to upgrade the battery for him to get him uh, um, more uh, more life out of it. But I ran some tests on that, and even pulling a steady uh, half an amp out of the out of the power supply, we got we got uh, about an hour uh, on you know on test. Me running it on test, uh, and I don't believe his train is going to pull you know half an amp continuously during the full twenty minute run. So uh, it gives you some idea. Yeah, it does. It does. Well, I can see in the future, I'm in a, the mode of rebuilding right now because my, my layout is outdoors. And it actually just, you know, just as your eyes become too, you know, much bigger than your stomach, I built more HO layout than I could maintain. So I went back to a, to a clean sheet and uh, I'm in the stage of hand laying track and, and so forth on the rebuild. But Speaking with uh, Bob, who owns an affair with trains here in Phoenix, where I, you know, do all my shopping on that, and I was telling him about this interview I had with you coming up, and I explained the products to him, and his eyes just glassed over because he's done similar work for, you know, O-Gage, G-Scale, and I said, but think with the battery application, the opportunities in HO-Scale. And so we have a, or he has a very large layout at the hobby shop. It actually came out of a museum. I said, you know, once I get to the point of so much track down, I said, I'm going to invest in one of the, a couple of these drive tracks. You know, I'll buy a couple of uh, F units from him, strip out the motors, apply your unit, buy one of the, the battery packs. And we're just going to test it down there and see what this does for the world of HO. I'll keep you up to date on that. Yeah, I'd appreciate that. And as I said, I've got uh, one uh, modeler out there who was 
given the battery power supply a huge workout. And mm -hmm. um, one of the one of the advantages of the way we sort of operate is we're, we're sort of still in a pre-engineering phase, and so it's we've still got opportunities to basically tweak the design and to experiment with um, different battery choices to kind of try to accommodate uh, uh, reasonable demands and probably even a few unreasonable ones. But um, we've got that flexibility. Now, at some point, we're going to commit to uh, uh, full-scale manufacturing. And uh, once we do that, um, a lot of the flexibility to tweak things goes away. Uh, we're not, not at that point yet. Uh, we, we have gone to that we, we've at that point on the s cab and of course on the uh the uh, radio receiver for locos there they've already been through a production cycle there's inventory on hand uh we will at some point commit to manufacturing i believe on the on the power supply but uh, right now um supply is available but it's not uh, not a mass-produced supply it's uh it's yours truly sitting there uh, assembling <laughs> these things uh Okay. Squinting, squinting through my visor, um, as I do it. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, as I say, explain. Well, it's no, it's no different to doing countered cross stitch or something like that. So, yeah. A, well, I tell my wife if I get any more magnifiers on this desk, I'm going to have to get a bigger desk. You know, when you talk about squinting through the magnifiers, um, you know, listeners, go check out this website. The uh, yeah, for what you're doing, especially if you're doing custom, you want to explore the ability to have either bigger speakers uh, into your HO, either cabs or, you know, like a Kato, something like that. I mean, this is worth looking into. And the battery, especially for somebody like me who's outdoors, I mean, it's a desert. I don't have to worry, of, you know, about rain a whole lot, but deserts tend to be dirty. Uh so this has got my interest. So now that Uncle Sam has given us uh, Social Security guys a raise starting in January, I think I've uh, got a little bit more uh, funding power here to go out and exercise the uh, the experiment. Neil, I tell you what, this has been an enjoyable hour. Uh, I had looked forward to uh, talking with you all week just because of what I, you know, the... Uh, the change, the technological change that these products represent for the hobby. And I think you guys have done a great job. You've just an amazing design on the truck. Now we got the, uh, the LiPo power and the S cab. I mean, these are game changers. Well, I appreciate your interest. Uh, and uh, I'm hearing a little bit of enthusiasm there. I love to hear that. Uh, I uh, I thrive on that. I think that uh, at some point, uh, when we're refreshed a bit, we might want to come back and uh, revisit the uh, the future of the uh, S cab, the handheld uh, throttle, and um, where that might go. Okay. Uh, the uh, the version out there now is um, you know a full production prototype. But of course, um, we provided the ability to uh, to essentially upgrade the firmware in it from time to time. Uh, so there's no reason why that has to be a totally static product, and I and I don't think it will be. Uh, so when you upgrade the firmware, is it all new, or do you just make the changes, make it backwards compatible with 
previous releases. I'm not going to go for total backward compatibility because that would limit the uh, the options we have. It's it's more a matter of accommodating what what the users find to be convenient. Okay. Now the the way we do the upgrade is just send out a new microprocessor chip and they unplug the one that's in there and plug the new one in. And the cost of a microprocessor chip is about two and a half bucks. Oh well, that's certainly cost effective so, and pretty so, straightforward. So, you know, so, which is, by the way, exactly the same way that uh, North Coast Engineering and the other guys upgrade the firmware in their uh, their throttles as well. They just just send the chip and uh, unplug what's there and plug the new one in. Okay. Well, I like it when you keep it simple. Okay. Well, anything else you need to add here, Neil? We've been, uh, like I say, it's a, been a very productive hour. I appreciate your taking the time. Oh, thanks for your time, sir. <laughs> okay, Paul. Well, good luck with it. I hope when you get done editing it, you find that it uh, goes together okay. I think it will, sir. Mm-hmm.